0: Tonight, there's smoke in the air in New York, and I'm not talking about wildfires. It's been over six months since the first legal recreational cannabis dispensary opened here, and though that store is doing well, nearby states are vastly outpacing New York in sales. What's wrong with the Empire State's rollout? MetroFocus starts right now.
1: This is Metro Focus with Rafael P. Ramon, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation.
0: Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael Piroman. Almost two years after New York State legalized adult use of recreational marijuana, the first dispensary, Housing Works, finally opened its doors. Recently, Housing Works reported that in its first six months of operation, it sold $12 million worth of marijuana products, doubling its initial sales projections. Though this particular dispensary has been very successful, the rest of the state has lagged behind. In fact, housing Works sales represent over one-third of the $33.4 million that the entire New York state legal recreational marijuana industry generated in that same time period. And as a whole, New York sales numbers pale in comparison to other states, such as New Jersey, which generated $24 million in marijuana sales in its first month alone. So why did it take New York two years to get its legal weed market up and running? What made housing works so much more successful than the state's other dispensaries? And where exactly is the tax money generated from these stores going to? Joining us now to answer these and other questions are two experts on the growing cannabis industry Mona Jung, the state's cannabis policy reporter for Politico, and Jeremy Burke, the founder of Cultivated, a newsletter about the cannabis industry. Welcome, both of you. It's a pleasure to have you here with us.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
2: So, Yeah, Jeremy, likewise.
0: Jeremy, let me start with you. You know, As I mentioned in the introduction, it took nearly two years to get the first dispensary open um, here in New York. Uh, was that what was expected? It was almost two years par for the course?
2: Yeah, first off, thanks for having me on. It's always uh, fascinating discussing these cannabis policy issues, and thanks for bringing your attention to it. Um, You know, I I would say that I think people expected New York to be slow, and that is what the regulators and policymakers told people. They're trying to do something a little bit different with their cannabis policy. Um, At the same time, I don't think people thought that, um, you know, over two years into it, we'd have only about 20 stores open statewide. That is far behind what Uh, policymakers had projected. At the same time, you know, regulators here to be fair to them, they've a really tough job, they're trying to use cannabis legalization to solve problems of economic inequality. They're telling people that if they get these cannabis license licenses, excuse me, they can create generational wealth. Um, And that's a lot more difficult than just saying, opening up the market right away and saying anyone can come in all these businesses well-endowed businesses coming to make money. And so what they're trying to do is very hard. Um, and that's causing uh, the slow rollout, roll out, to say the least.
0: So, Mona, one of the ways that the state has trying to uh, make this industry uh, a, a means to to achieve equity um, has been that it decided to give licensing priority to those who had been convicted of violating marijuana laws in the past or, or, or to uh, a close family members or someone who had. Um, You know, that at the same time as Forbes magazine is reporting that some states actually prohibit people with convictions, drug convictions from holding licenses. Uh, Tell us what New York decided to do this exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, since, you know, the first states in the U.S., places like Colorado and Washington state started legalizing adult use marijuana, Um, you know, the conversation has really shifted to become one about social justice and racial equity, particularly since, you know, the data show across the board that black and brown people were disproportionately targeted for marijuana enforcement. And I think those sorts of racial disparities are particularly stark in New York, particularly in New York City. Um, So, you know, lawmakers here really wanted to put racial equity at the center of any sort of legalization proposal. And the regulators who were ultimately appointed to implement the law really prioritized that, which is how they came up with this conditional licensing program that very narrowly targets people who have been directly harmed by marijuana prohibition. And the idea is just to give back to people who have been economically harmed because they had cannabis convictions on their record. Maybe they found it hard to get jobs because of that or hard to get housing because of that and it is designed as a way to like repair the harms of that sort of enforcement
0: so Jeremy that th- New York is the only state that does that that puts uh, uh you know people who have been convicted of of marijuana uh, infractions in the past um, on the front of the line um, but as I said in the introduction you know New York State is lagging behind states like uh, New Jersey and states like Maryland which earned actually 87 million dollars just on its first month, I wonder if, if that lag, that economic lag of New York States has anything to do with this particular policy. What do you think?
2: Look, I think it absolutely does. However, I wanna be careful to say that, you know, it's the social equity applicant's fault that the market is being rolled out slowly. I think that's not necessarily the truth, but the truth of the matter is, is that they have given, regulators have given them preferential access to the market However, it is very difficult for them to actually get up and running. Um, You know, the applications are open to a very narrow window of people, people who have either cannabis related offense themselves, are directly related to someone and have run a profitable business um, in the preceding few years. And that's a very narrow window of people. And it's also very difficult to actually sift through and see who is telling the truth about their business. Um, Are they capable of doing this? Are they set up um, from the investment side in a way that they're going to be successful? And so these things take a long time. Um, And at the same time, it's like, you know, the state has taken a more hands off and they're getting more hands on slowly um, approach to enforcing illicit stores that have gone up everywhere. And so the product is freely available all over the place. And as it takes time to give the right people access to the market, um, it's slowing down the rollout of legal market. Compare that to Maryland, which let um, publicly traded companies in, in the industry, they're known as multi-state operators. They let them in very early and quickly, and that can stand up the market. At the same time, um, it doesn't necessarily accomplish the goals that New York has been very open about wanting to solve for, which is uh, to create economic opportunity for people harmed by the war on drugs.
0: So one more question on this, Mona, on this this prioritizing policy. You've written that an unintended consequence of this policy, of, of, of the equity program, has been to leave women entrepreneurs out of the business. Uh, How does it do that?
1: Well, as you can imagine, you know, at the height of stop and frisk in New York City, it was really black and brown men who were disproportionately targeted by enforcement. So just in terms of like the numbers of people who have past convictions on their records, um, it is overwhelmingly men. Um, And the state tried to remedy this by opening it up to, you know, having an immediate family member who was impacted. That way, you know, women could also qualify, um, but you see women in very low numbers in, in this priority licensing program, despite the fact that, you know, in the legalization bill, women-owned businesses are also supposed to be prioritized. However, they're not really included in this initial conditional licensing program, which is, as Jeremy mentioned, very narrowly targeted.
0: So Jeremy, I mean, more questions on this, actually. To, um, sure. yeah, yeah. There is a, 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 a As we tape this program, um, there is a pending court case um, uh, related to New York's prioritizing policy. Uh, the program is, in, in fact, being sued. Who is doing the suing? You let me know if you know these the, the answer to these questions. What is the complaint and what's the remedy that's being sought?
2: Yeah, so so the lawsuit you're referring to, um, it's the Fiori, I, I believe that's how you pronounce it, Fiori lawsuit. Um, it's a group of veterans, the plaintiffs are a group of veterans who are suing the state and saying that they are supposed to be one of the groups that should have preferential access to the market. Um, It's not just as Mona pointed out, um, these mostly minority black and brown entrepreneurs, but it should also be veterans, um, specifically veterans who may have been injured in the line of service. Um, So the lawsuit basically is getting to the heart of this conditional licensing program and saying, look, like we were supposed to have priority too. And if we can't have priority, then maybe no one should have priority. Um, and so that that really is sort of an elemental question about what New York is doing with its legalization program. So right now, um, the conditional licensing structure is under an injunction. The state has been enjoined to stop hmm. releasing those licenses and, um, you know, stores that are in the process of opening, entrepreneurs that are in the process of setting up their real estate, getting their stock, all the things they need to do to open uh, a cannabis shop, um, they're forced to halt. and so. Um, you know, they have a lot of overhead costs that are not being paid. They have a lot of employees that are not being paid. And so it's really throwing a wrench in things right now.
0: Uh, how do you guess, if you have a guess, of how this is going to be resolved, what, what, the, what the ruling is going to be? Do you, do you have a guess?
2: Yeah, look, I'm not a lawyer, so I would say <laughs> that uh, my guess is probably amateurish at best. But at the same time, look, you know, the plaintiffs do have a point. Um, when you read the MRTA, that's the bill that uh, former Governor Cuomo signed into law in 2021 that passed cannabis, legalization. Um, you know, veterans are specifically listed as a group that should have preferential access. Um, they're listed as one of the groups. It's there in the bill. I don't know how, you know, it's all, all the pieces are gonna fit together. I don't know which way the courts are gonna decide. Um, I, I, I was watching the hearing uh, last week, and, and the judge had a point to say, like, maybe everyone should get in a room and come together both sides and figure this all out. Um, I think that's a little idealistic given what's on the line. Um, And just earlier this week, uh, there is some reporting that um, the sides aren't negotiating anymore towards the settlement. So um, we'll see what will happen. Yeah, Yeah, I
0: should, I should repeat that this is happening while we're taping. Who knows by the time this airs, this may all be resolved. So so back to you, you know, you've written that the rollout of the New York uh, recreational marijuana market has been quote, a mess. Aside from from all the prioritizing stuff um, and in the article uh, where you say that you uh, profile four, I think it's four individuals who have been granted licensing licenses and uh, and and you talk about some of the headaches that they've had to go through in order to get their stores open. Uh, Can you give us some examples of some of those problems that they faced and, and why they faced them.
1: Oh, gosh, there's so many problems. I mean, (laughs) I think one of the major issues was uh, the lack of raising funding for the public-private fund that was supposed to help these licensees with real estate and capital. So as a result, a lot of licensees, because of these delays and because of their desire to get open and running as soon as possible to have that first mover advantage, you know, some of them had to take out personal loans to finance their dispensary openings. You know, one applicant I talked to, she said, I would have never taken out like i would have never applied for this license if i knew i was going to have to take out a loan to fund it um some other issues have been real estate you know it can be really hard to find compliant real estate and even if you can find compliant real estate um you know a lot of landlords don't want to rent to a cannabis business because Mm -hmm. it is still federally illegal a lot of landlords have mortgages that are backed you know federally so There are all these sort of issues within the cannabis business that just makes it really difficult because of the federal illegality. Um, And then you have the whole factor of a state program that was supposed to uh, match licensees with actual dispensary locations. And that program, the funding, the real estate, it was all very slow to get up and running. So licensees, a lot of them decided to go out and find their own locations. But that put people in kind of like the sticky situation where they were competing with a state agency for like a limited number of compliant locations. So there are all these like really interesting hurdles that people faced because of the nature of the cannabis business and the way um, New York's program is designed.
0: Well, you know, uh, Jeremy earlier said that, uh, that the regulators had taken a, a hands-off attitude, but as I read this stuff, it seems to me like like they're very hands-on to the point as as you're right, that, that one li- licensee had had already put the signage uh, on the front of its store costing her thousands of dollars and the regulators came in and said no no that they vetoed it you know so so maybe the are they a little bit too hands-on rather than hands-off and 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 let me just ask this also you write about that there was a meeting in june of the licensees and the regulators that was very heated what's come out of that meeting has the situation gotten better
1: yeah, I mean, I think cannabis by nature as an industry is very strictly regulated on the state level because of federal illegality. And and for that reason, you know, a lot of times uh, people are dealing with a lot of regulatory and compliance hurdles, like like the issue with the sign you mentioned. Um, with regards to the contentious meeting, I mean, after that meeting, the head of the dormitory authority of the state of New York, which is the agency overseeing the real estate and Um, investment fund portion of the program, Ruben McDaniel, he stepped down from the cannabis control board after that meeting. Um, uh, You know, not saying it was because of the meeting, um, but, you know, that agency has come under a lot of criticism from licensees because of the, you know, things have just not gone according to plan. You know, DASNI, they had anticipated raising money for the fund by September, 2022. They didn't raise money for the fund until July of this year. So, you know, I think a lot of times government officials think like, oh, we're gonna roll out this cannabis program and fail to appreciate how difficult it is to fundraise for something like cannabis because of federal illegality or, you know, the real estate portion, there's these federal and state conflict and drug laws, which creates all sorts of problems for the industry and also for regulators.
0: So Jeremy, how much money has the state committed to this industry?
2: The state's committed a lot of money. Um, trying to think of a, a lump sum here. I mean, there is, um, I read something like a
0: York- is, is, is that? Yeah, right? there
2: there's a the public private fund is supposed to be up to 200 million. And yeah. then um, the the EDC, um, the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which is sort of a public private agency, is also uh, has also committed, I believe, about um, I think it's committed about 5 million and it's looking to raise 25 million I, I don't have the full numbers ahead of me and so um when you do the math it's like upwards of 250 million dollars not to mention um all the you know upfront costs to set up these new regulatory agencies the office of canvas management the cannabis control board like these agencies need to be staffed with lawyers and policymakers, and so the state has put a lot of money into this um just from a raw number perspective upwards of well upwards of 250 million dollars
0: right so so Mona uh, let's turn to uh, housing works which I talked a lot about in the introduction Um, you know the first legal dispensary to to open its doors it did well doing much better than than some of the other dispensaries that have opened up Um, what's the secret of its success
1: Well, I don't know. I would say Housing Works is necessarily doing better than other dispensaries. They were the first dispensary to open up, so they have that advantage of being first to market. And for a while, being the only regulated dispensary open in the city certainly helped them generate a lot of revenue, a lot of sales. Hmm. Um, But I do hear that there are a lot of other dispensaries that are open right now who are doing very well in terms of sales. And like Jeremy mentioned, you know, there's... Some about like 20 regulated dispensaries open in a state with a population of like 20 million people. That they're very few and far between, and there is great demand for the product. So I think all of these early dispensaries are doing well. Um, However, part of the issue for particularly the justice impacted entrepreneurs is that some of them opened on a pop up basis. You know, the state was really, you know, in a rush to get these dispensaries open. And some of these entrepreneurs, their dispensaries were not fully built out before they opened on a pop up basis. And then they have to shut their doors to do construction before opening back up. So you can imagine like that situation for like in a, a nascent business can be pretty detrimental
0: So, jeremy you agree that that maybe uh, that particular dispensary is, is is not doing that much better than the other ones or and if it is are there lessons from it that the other dispensaries can learn
2: yeah no look i, I don't want to discredit anything that that housing works is doing um, i've been inside the shop it's it's a well-run store they have a good product selection um at the same time you know cannabis is cannabis it's pretty a pretty undifferentiated product, like you can get the same thing at a legal dispensary that you can at an illegal dispensary, for the most part, um, you know, the illicit products generally aren't tested for pesticides in the same way, they're not regulated in the same way. But, um, you know, for an average consumer, it's sort totally of the same. Uh, the other thing I'll point out is that, you know, Housing Works, I think doubled their sales expectations. Um, we also didn't really get to see you know, a full accounting of all the expenses associated with generating that revenue. And so we don't really have a good sense of what the margin is like for housing works and whether their actual margin is that much better than other legal dispensaries. At the same time, um, it's a great store and it's impressive what they've done with their sales numbers, for sure.
0: And by the way, Mona, why? I mean, you, you can everywhere you go in Manhattan, at least in Manhattan and in Brooklyn, it seems to be a, a, a dispensary open, illegal dispensary open. Um, <laughs> I, I, how is that? possible they look like they function with impunity
1: yeah i mean they kind of do uh part of the reason for that is simply because you know part of the point of legalization is to move away from criminal enforcement of cannabis sales um, and the other part of it is that you know there has been i mean there's this great demand right and i think there's a lot of consumer confusion i know just talking to my friends they'll say oh there's this new defense reopen on my block and people think that they're regulated because they're so outwardly selling that's
0: cannabis good. but that's, I thought so
1: yeah but they they aren't licensed um, and you know I think the state is really struggling to crack down on these stores you know recently I heard an estimate from a uh, city councilwoman Lynn Shulman that there are upwards of 2,000 illicit shops in New York and that's not even I I imagine it'd be much greater than that you know um, and so it's really difficult to put in the resources to enforce against these dispensaries. Governor Hochul has, you know, appropriated more money in the state budget to go after them. You know, there have been some tweaks in the law to sort of increase enforcement powers. But you hear about these raids and it's like they'll shut down, you know, seven dispensaries. And, and that will be like a big deal from an enforcement perspective. Meanwhile, there are thousands in the city alone. So it is really difficult.
0: That's got to have an impact on the legal dispensaries. It's going to dampen their business
1: absolutely. I mean, cannabis from these unlicensed stores are generally much cheaper mm-hmm. than than the licensed dispensaries because people are not having to pay taxes. They're not having to deal with cost of compliance or the cost of testing. Mm-hmm. So for consumers, it is it it's a cheaper option.
0: So, so, Jeremy, of the three, $33.4 million that the entire New York State legal recreational marijuana industry has generated, how much of that has gone so far to taxes? And where specifically are those taxes going?
2: Yeah, that's it, it, a good question. Um, in terms of specific portion, New York, New York's taxation system is around 13% on the consumer um, for like a takeout piece. So um, you can do the math there and like roughly, you know, three and a half million dollars of taxes already raised by the government. Um, And so there is a big question as to where the tax revenue should go. Um, I think that's like an open question in the MRTA. And at the same time, um, part of the problem, trying to choose my words carefully here, is that the tax revenue has come in a lot under expectation um, based on some of these issues that Mona has outlined. So um, a lot of these sort of budgetary pieces aren't really getting filled Um, So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is, um, you know, I think with the veterans suit, it's unclear as to how much longer the licensing structure is going to go on. And so that could sort of open up the hornet's nest, this thicket of like, where is this tax revenue going? Can we sort of look at pieces of the bill and figure out um, if we can change some of those things to depend on like all the interests that are circulating around it? Um, So it's sort of a... (laughs) complicated system right now in terms of the tax revenue. It's going to be a bit of a fight ongoing.
0: Now, Mona, when uh, legalization was first debated, many of those who opposed it argued that it would uh, be too easily available for kids, that it would serve as a gateway to harder drugs, that it would cause more traffic accidents um, and that it would lead to an increase in psychotic episodes among the users, especially among kids. Now, it seems from what I read that that's at least some of these problems have indeed uh, have been experienced in the two states that legalized marijuana 10 years ago, Colorado and Washington. Has New York experienced any of that since the dispensaries began to open? And if not, was it because maybe we learned the lessons from Colorado and Washington?
1: Well, I think the youth use aspect of this has been happening in New York simply because you do have this proliferation of unlicensed dispensaries that do sell to minors and are selling unregulated products. Um, and, you know, you I have seen like anecdotal news stories about, you know, kids who, you know, got into some sort of like unlicensed product and accidentally ingested some like cannabis infused candy and had to go to the hospital and these sorts of things. Um, I think if you look at the overall research on the early states that did legalize cannabis, it is a very mixed and I don't think we can definitively say youth use has gone up. There are studies that show youth use has gone up. There are studies that show youth use has gone down, you -hmm. know, and so it's the data is mixed. And I think overall, the sort of fears haven't come to fruition in the way that um, people who are adamantly opposed to it, warned that they might um that's not to say there aren't you know public health harms associated with having a commercial cannabis market um but yeah i think it's it's really too early right now in new york to tell
0: so so jeremy we we have less than two minutes left but but i got to get into this you know sometimes we some of us forget that because so many states are legalizing marijuana that it's still illegal federally um what kind of monkey wrenches has that thrown into the different states uh, marijuana industries, including New York? And and if and if the federal government you know, legalizes it, what effect would that have on, on the New York state industry?
2: So how can I answer that question? That's like a Ph.D. thesis in two and a half minutes. <laughs> okay. And you um, got a
0: minute but, to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I will I'll, I'll start on, on the one hand. And, and Mona mentioned this, too. Um, the general operating environment for businesses, whether that's a mom and pop, um, you know, main street retail shop to the biggest publicly traded companies, there's so much regulatory challenges associated with federal illegality. Um, number one is just the tax rate is is absurdly high, and the reason for that is there's a section of the IRS code um, called 280E, which says that businesses that traffic controlled substances, cannabis, as you mentioned, is a federally controlled substance. Um, they're not allowed to deduct regular business expenses from their tax bill. So that's things like office supplies. Payroll, yeah, Thirty whatever seconds, Jeremy. Thirty seconds. Yeah. Away. So, anyways, okay. So that's 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 a big piece um, as well. Um, I think the second piece for 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 policymakers. Um, is that there isn't a lot of federal cohesion as to what cannabis legalization looks like. So if policymakers want to test different things, public health impacts, teen use impacts, um, they're not really able to do so because each state is a microcosm of its own policy. and so um that right. heterogeneity
0: is is very got i'm yeah. sorry yeah that, that was a kind of words i apologize yeah. for that that's we okay gotta, yeah, run. Yeah. We gotta run mona sorry <laughs> i didn't get back I get to you i got many other questions yeah. but thank you guys that was very helpful <laughs> thank you so much we'll get you but we'll have you back as this Yes. Yeah. thank
2: you
1: thank you
0: thanks for tuning into metro focus you can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with metro focus the podcast Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metrofocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, W-L-I-W slash radio and on the NPR One app.